How would you cope if you started to lose a part of your anatomy each day? How would you handle the realization that what was once part of your body was no longer there? Well, nearly 7 million Americans have learned to contend with such an unwelcomed reality and yet lead productive and fulfilled lives. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. You may be expecting to hear Phil Collins, but this is actually a parody performed by Peter J. Piper about suffering from hair loss, or otherwise known as suffering from alopecia. I can see it coming my Admittedly, it is important to have a sense of humor about most things, but the laughter can become as thin as falling strands of hair when one is affected by hair loss personally. It is estimated that 6.8 million Americans are shocked to discover the unexpected and dramatic loss of their hair. These numbers include men, women, and yes, even children. Some persons are bald by choice. We think of actors like Yul Brynner. We think of female performers like Sinead O'Connor. But most of us don't do it by choice. And when this occurs, it can be rather shocking or at the very least unsettling. Nobody knows this more than my guest, Jamie Elmore. She's the owner of J Salon in Seattle, Washington, and she has worked in the industry for nearing now three decades. In 2004, she was diagnosed with alopecia. This means essentially she was losing her hair and quite rapidly. As a result, she had a heightened sensitivity and awareness of others in the same plight. Since that time, she has started a support group that she established in 2009. We are most delighted to welcome her to Watching America. Jamie Elmore, thank you for joining us. Um, I have to ask you, prior to your own experience with this malady, uh, you surely would have had women from time to time coming to your salon who were struggling with this. How did you advise them or how did you deal with this circumstance? Or did you, to some extent, just wait for them to take the lead on what they expected you to do when they were in the chair before you? Wow. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, to answer that question, prior to my diagnosis, I had never, ever seen or heard of alopecia until it started happening to me. So I had no point of reference. Um, I had clients that came in that maybe were, their hair was shedding, um, things of that nature, 
but never to the extent of alopecia, seeing bald spots. So I never, ever seen that. So it was, for me, it was more, I was the blind leading the blind. Um, I was walking into the unknown because I didn't know what was going on with my own hair loss situation. How old were you when you, when you first noticed this this problem? I was 24 years old after the birth of my daughter. So I started noticing shedding, but I didn't notice, um, find a bald spot in my head until 1998. So I started shedding, my hair started shedding in 1994. And four years later, I found my first bald spot at the nape of my neck. And, and of course, there's some more in between that 94 and 98 that was going on in my life that I think was the onset of my alopecia. Now, one of the things is very few of us regularly look at the back of our heads, particularly in domestic settings with mirrors. Very few of us have a three-way mirror. Uh, you can play games sometimes where you, you angle the medicine cabinet mirror against a, a stationary mirror and, and perhaps get an idea. But usually for most of us, it's quite an ordeal. However, in your profession, you're used to working with multiple mirrors. Were you aware of it uh, before others? Because we can have young children not intending to be malicious that will giggle and point at the back of people's head, heads um, uh, noticing an irregularity. W was it something that you discovered firsthand initially yourself or did you learn later that other people had been aware of it but had not mentioned it to you? That's a great question. Actually, a barber friend noticed my head. He was cutting my hair styling my hair this particular day, and I call it fading out the nape of my neck because I was wearing my hair in a short hairstyle. Mm -hmm. And he noticed it, and he brought it to my attention, and I was like, well, I felt it, but I really hadn't really looked at it because I thought it was part of my style because I was used to wearing my hair really, really short, almost shaved in the back of my head anyway. So I, it really didn't pop out. But when he brought it to my attention, the bald spot was very smooth. It was different than the way that I normally wore my hair and, the, and was different than the way that he would normally cut it. It was smooth as a baby's bottom. So there was definitely a distinction between the way I normally wore my hair and then the way that my alopecia started. And that's when he noticed it. Now, Jamie, when this first occurred, did you try and comfort yourself with the idea that perhaps this was an anomaly and it wouldn't continue, it'd just be in that one spot, or were you immediately in some type of emotional panic? Um, actually, I was not in panic at all. I just thought, with his advice, it'll probably grow back. And we just went on, I went on with my daily life, and then that's when it started playing tag. And what do you mean playing tag? What I mean by that, it started on one side of my head at the nape of my neck. And then a few weeks later, I don't remember the time frame, but then it moved over to the other side of my neck at the nape of my neck. And then as time went on, it would grow in, fall out, grow in, fall out. But what, what was so interesting about this um, disease is, when I say playing tag, it started moving throughout my head. I mean, from the nape to the top, to the left side, so to the right side. So it was kind of like hopscotch on, on there both. There you go. 
That's got it. it. Got you. Now, when you're in the midst of this, and say this has been going on for six months, did you worry about your self-concept as as a woman? Uh, it's one thing for a gentleman to be bald, and, and you know I am follically challenged, as my audience has heard me refer to on a number of occasions. But uh, okay. it's it's not as devastating, I would think, for most males as it is for a woman, because well, even from uh, common culture to even the Bible says that a woman's hair is to be is to be uh, prized highly and what have you. Um, Tell me about your self-concept when you when you really began to become aware, Jamie, that this was not going to go away. That that is so good. Well, my self-concept, if I can kind of just backtrack a little bit, I had so much going on in my life during that time frame. Um, my daughter was born premature. Um, she had a lot of medical issues, and there was so much going on, and I didn't have, I wasn't focused on me. So at the same time, I was juggling my daughter's medical situation and what's going on in her life and then trying to balance my business and, and my life at the same time. And so as my hair is falling out, I have the ability being a hairstylist to what I call it masquerade. Mm-hmm. I could cover up. Mm-hmm. I could do different styles. And so it was kind of difficult to focus in on myself. But when it got to the point to where I could no longer masquerade, I could no longer hide, I had to go to the doctors. And that's when I got my diagnosis and got the news that I had alopecia. Now, were you reticent and reluctant to go out in public when it became uh, a severe case? Uh, did you find yourself perhaps even subconsciously saying, yeah, I don't want to go to that party tonight? Would it have that kind of effect on you? Yes, it did. And I... um it brings back, it brings up some emotion because I can remember I would go to, uh, go to church and I would strategically sit in the back row of the church because I didn't want anybody to stand or to sit behind me because I felt like they could see my bald spot. Because remember, I could hide it. I could masquerade, I could wear the weaves, I could French braid my hair, I could do different things to try to cover all the bald spots that were playing hopscotch in my head. And so when I would go out into public, I always, always felt like somebody could see what was going on with me. And so that was, that was a roller coaster ride for me. And that was the onset of my anxiety and panic attacks and depression and all the above. You mentioned being in church, so one would presume from that you're a person of faith. Um, did you find yourself bringing this to your sense of, of God and the higher deity and saying, God, please deliver me from this, this malady? And how did you work through that when there wasn't an immediate healing? Well, that's a good question. I I never, again, there was so much going on in my life during that time. I didn't, I didn't even know how to check on myself. I didn't even know how to have a voice for me because my focus was on my daughter. And so for me to, I can't even remember talking to God about what was going on with me because it was like, 
my prayers, my focus was on my daughter and her life. And so, like I said, I just kept living. I kept, I was in survivor mode. So I didn't, I, I didn't even pray to God at that time about my situation because my prayers and my strength and my focus was my daughter and her health and her just being alive. So I don't know if that makes sense to you. It does. It does absolutely as a parent. It absolutely does. It's not that you didn't care about what was happening because, you know, uh, as is evident by you describing the misplaced shame you felt by the idea of people looking at the back of your head and trying to avoid that. But at the same, one has to take priority uh, of the key issues in their lives, and your daughter inevitably would be that. So it makes perfect sense, Jamie. You're just simply a very dedicated and loving mother. Thank you. But you're also a lady, and um, obviously your daughter had a daddy, and there's romance and uh, ladies wake up in the morning, I know, because I'm married to one, I've been married to for decades. And, um, you know, they preen themselves and they look in the mirror and they get out of the shower and they see themselves. In your case, uh, you became aware that you were losing your hair. Did that affect your sense of sexuality, a, a certain degree of loss of confidence? Did you feel that? I did. Um, I can remember going to bed at night waking up one morning and my eyebrows were gone. My eyelashes were gone. My nose hairs were gone. So just waking up the next day and to see the person that was reflecting from the mirror, I didn't know who that was. I didn't, I couldn't recognize myself. And so I felt like I felt like someone had snuck into my room in the middle of the night and stole a part of myself. I felt like they stole a part of who I was. I felt like they were erased the hair right off of my body. And so I, I felt like there was my femininity was snatched. I didn't even know who I was as a woman. So there was there was so much unanswered questions. There was it, it was like. My identity, I didn't know who I was. So the the, the self-love, the um, it, it wasn't there. So it, it, worry, worrying about a man and how he sees me, that was my least um, concern because I didn't even feel attracted to myself. I didn't even know who I was from day to day because alopecia is like a roller coaster ride. You don't know how it's going to affect your body. You don't know what part of your body is going to be affected. And then the psychological aspect is a whole different ballgame. Whole different ballgame. So when you reached out, Jamie, to medical professionals, without impugning anyone's reputation or declaring names, were you satisfied with how they responded to you? Um, they may have responded, perhaps we hear, well medically, but perhaps not as effectively with your personhood. What was your experience? I my, my doctor was great. She didn't know what alopecia was, so I got referred to a specialist. And when I went to the specialist, I remember them bringing me into the room and um, set me down on a table, and they told me, I said, well, Jamie, we're going to do a biopsy on your scalp so we can find out exactly what's going on. So that means they took a little 
culture, a little piece of my scalp and sent it to the lab and make a long story short, came back and they told me, said, well, you have alopecia. And I said, well, what is that? And they kind of looked at me and said, well, alopecia is an autoimmune disease. It's where your immune system attacks your hair follicle and causes your hair to fall out. And I said, okay, so does that mean I'm dying? Does that mean my hair is going to grow back? I mean, what does that mean I have alopecia? From a medical standpoint, all they could give me was just the medical terminology, um, the suggestions on how to treat it. Um, you need the injections, the cortisone shots, but they didn't have I don't even think they understood what alopecia was themselves. And from that appointment, I remember going home and I sat in my car and I cried. I cried and I said to myself, am I dying and these people don't know what's going on with me? That's when I fell into my deep, I call it the black hole. I fell into a deep depression and I felt like I didn't have any options. I, I didn't have a point of reference. I didn't have anybody else that I could call. I didn't have a friend. I didn't have anyone. So they didn't give me any literature. They didn't say, well, Jamie, take this pamphlet, call this person. They can support you. Call this support group. They had nothing for me but another treatment that they, that they thought could help my follicle kick in and start growing. If that answers your question. It does. I, I'm struck by the irony and unkindness of fate that um, this would occur and happen to a woman who is a hairstylist who spends virtually six days a week working with other people's hair. How did you focus on working on other people's scalps and heads when you didn't have the hair yourself? I mean, and I presume you still do the same work today. Um, but in the early stages, were there ever tears welling up inside you when you had somebody in a chair and you were working with the hair and you have perhaps a very understandable envy? Did that occur? You know, I, I never had a envy. I, I always looked at my job and what I do as a responsibility because I know that everybody that sits in my chair is it's more than just styling their hair. And I had, I would say that God given, um, gave me the ability to, I, I'm not going to even say he gave me the ability. I was numb to what was going on in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was able to focus on the person that was in my chair. I never, and, and, and I think about this all the time. How was I able to navigate? How was I able to service clients for all, all this time without having that um, envy? But I can say I would have flashbacks. I would uh, have thoughts. And when I'm styling certain people's hair, I, I would say to myself, I remember when I could do this to my hair. I remember when I wore my hair in this style, but I never had a, a, a anger toward a person that sat in my chair. I just, um, I think I was just kind of numb to what was going on with me at the same time, if that makes sense. It does. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. My guest is Jamie Elmore, 
who started and established a salon some 30 years ago called Jay's Salon in Seattle, Washington. She would become um, a victim of alopecia, which is tremendous hair loss. Perhaps I shouldn't say the word victim because you certainly don't seem victimized now. You've actually gotten on top of it. So at this point, Jamie, would you step me through this, walk me through this? Um, you've, you've lost massive amounts of hair in clumps. You've arrived at the point that you wake up and you don't have eyebrows and you don't have um, uh, eyelashes. How do you handle it cosmetically? Did you go through the phase of having uh, scarves wrapped around your head or did you immediately say, well, you know, I'm going to start looking at wigs now? What was the progression of trying to the best of your ability amend the physical changes that had taken place? I, so when I lost my eyebrows, I immediately <laughs> went to the internet and I started Googling, trying to figure out what are my options. And through my own research, I found that they had um, eyebrows that you could almost, almost like an adhesive that had hair on them that you can put on your, on your eyebrows. And I thought, I was like, hmm, I don't think I want to do that every day. So I said, well, you know what, Jamie, you're just going to have to learn how to draw these eyebrows on yourself. So I just started playing with my makeup. I just started practicing on myself. Then with me being a hairstylist, I have the ability to accessorize, I call it. So I started wearing the wraps, the head wraps and the scarves and the hats. And I just did whatever I could do to function and to live every day. My options were the wigs. I wore wigs for, mm, I wore wigs for, I'll say for a few years, but I hated them because they were hot. Um, they didn't look natural, and I just didn't feel my authentic self. But I never thought that I would get to a point to where I would I wouldn't wear a wig. That's a whole nother that's a whole nother conversation. But I just I just started navigating. I started playing around and just um, practicing and being creative and watching videos and just doing different styles and different looks for myself that made me feel comfortable in my own skin. I was intrigued, uh, Jamie, by you talking about drawing your, your eyelashes, or uh, rather eyebrows, because that was actually um, an interesting technique in women's fashion. In the late 30s, early 40s, women like Marlena Dietrich, a very old actress who's obviously no longer with us, she, had, she was known for very, very high arched eyebrows that she would uh, pencil in and draw, and it was very, very glamorous to do that. There were other women who did uh, similar things, and um, like Joan Crawford would have high arched eyebrows. Did you have a little bit of fun designing the different eyebrows and said, today I'm going to have them a few centimeters lower, tomorrow higher? <laughs> did you, did, did, was there any, if I may use the term without trivializing your pain, was there any kind of sport or entertainment for yourself as you, you experimented? Um, yes and no. Um, I think for me, the, the entertainment or the creativity came into play when I started my image in image and accessory workshops that I offered for other women that were dealing with the same issue. That's when the creativity came into play because I was able to show the other women through example how we have options. I would tell the women that, we, first of all, you got to change your language. I would tell them, we don't wear wigs, we accessorize. 
And I would tell them, you know what, whatever wig that you have or whatever wig that you choose to wear on any given day, take ownership. Name it. If today you want to wear an Erica Badu with a big afro, you wear Erica Badu. If tomorrow you want to wear a Cleopatra wig with long, with long hair and bangs, you play around and you, you own it and you, you have to become creative. So that's when I became, uh, I'll say, more playful because I saw how I could take my skill, take my pain, and turn it around and empower other women and show them and give them tools to where they could learn how to dry on their eyebrows, where they could learn how to put on any kind of wig or head wrap. So I was able to take my pain and help other women um, rise up and get empowered to be more creative and look at it from a different standpoint or different point of view, if that makes sense. Jamie, there was a moment when you said to yourself, I can help other women and I'm going to do it. When was that moment? And when did you have your first meeting and what was it like? Oh, that's a good question. I was at, I was at the salon and I had a client that came in the room, came in the salon and sat down in my chair and I'm doing her hair. And she says to me, this Jamie, I have a friend, a coworker who has a daughter who was 11 years old at this time. Um, she has alopecia. Do you think you can talk to her? So I made an appointment. And I had the young lady and her mother come to my home because I wanted to give them privacy. Yes. So the young lady comes to my home, her and um, her mother, and we're sitting there and I'm looking at her. And I said, well, do you know why you're here? And she says, yes. I said, why are you here? She said, because you have alopecia. I said, I do. I said, would you like to see? She says, yes. So I took off my scarf. When I took off my scarf, she began to cry. I mean, just bawling. So I grabbed her and I put my arms around her and I took her up to this mirror that I had in my um, living room at the time. And she's crying, just crying. I said, why are you crying? She said, because I never seen anybody else that looks like me. And when she told me that, it just, it just stabbed me in my heart. And so I immediately told her, I said, you have so many options. I said, you can wear wigs, you can wear hats, you can wear big earrings. I said, you can do so many things. So I ran into my room and grabbed some earrings and came back out and showed her how to do different head wrapping styles and just gave her a lot of different um, style options. And when she left my house that day, I remember this was when I prayed to God. I said, God, what do you want me to do with this? And as clear as I'm talking to you right now, he said, I want you to start a support group. And I said, a support group? I said, I don't even know how to work a computer. So that is when I started my support group, put together a website, and it went live. When it went live, I had all these people from all over the world started contacting me, people from Seattle, from everywhere. And I held my first support group meeting in my home with eight women from all walks of life. And it was the beginning of the alopecia support group. And it was simply amazing because as we're sitting there in my living room, all eight of us, and we're going around and we're talking and sharing our stories. I remember this one lady and she started talking and, and, and explaining to us her journey. She snatched her wig off. 
when she snatched her wig off, I looked at her like, what? And all the women, everybody just started snatching their wigs off their heads. <laughs> That's great. Was like, oh <laughs> Liberation. Oh, my God. So that was the beginning yeah. of everything for me. <laughs> you were motivated by two things, faith, mm-hmm. love for God, and love for people. And in a sense, even though it's not you know, classically uh, designated as that, as an as a, uh, entity, it's a ministry that you do. Mm, yeah. Now, what has been the severest case that you've encountered that has tugged at your heart the most? Oh, that's a good one. Um, the severest case is August of 2018. I had a young lady um, reach out to me. I don't know how she found me. She must have Googled or she found our website or she found us on Facebook. But she sent me an email and she told me, and, and the story is open to the public. So she says, her name is Jazzy. She says, um, my name is Jazzy and I have alopecia and I'm doing self-harm and I need some help. Oh, so boy. I immediately responded to her and I told her my name and I told her, I said, well, first of all, we need to schedule a time where I can talk to your mother. I said, because I don't talk to little kids or children um, on the Internet or via email. I said, so you got to connect me with your mother and we can talk. And so she did some leg work. We were on our way to our first hair loss retreat. So when I get back to Seattle, I got another email from her and she chimed in her mom somehow. And I said, well, let's schedule a FaceTime. So we scheduled a FaceTime, and I started talking to her and her mother, and they're telling me the story and everything that's going on with Jazzy. And her mother gave me permission to kind of coach her and work with her. So I started working with Jazzy and her mom over a period of about 45 days. So in the midst of that, this one particular day, Jazzy, I reached out to Jazzy, and I'm asking her how her day going. And I said, what's going on with you today? And she said, I tried to commit suicide. And I said, you tried to commit suicide? And she says, yes. I said, what happened? So she told me the story, what happened. Immediately hung up with her and called her mom. And her mom told me everything that happened. Now, that, that was my, um, that was my, that was the moment that I knew that I had a responsibility was, that was greater than me. So, after I talked to her mom, I reached out to um, a famous, a, a, a friend of mine who happens to be the owner of Ezell's Famous Chicken here in Seattle, Washington. And he's like a brother of mine. And I told him, I reached out to him and told him what had happened. And he says to me, he calls me Elmore. He says, Elmore, what do you need? I said, I need this baby. I need Jazzy in Seattle, Washington. I need to get her here. So what he did, him and his company, they wrote a check and they flew Jazzy and her mother here to Seattle, Washington. They flew in. We put them up in the hotel. We got her wig donated, her eyebrows donated, prom shoes, a surprise birthday party. When I say that the community came together for five days where we loved on this little girl and her mother, treated them to a, a facial, just loved on them. And that was the moment that I knew that my calling and that it was bigger than me. Would you say, Jamie, that it's it's typically harder, my dear, on, on young girls uh, and children than it is perhaps on maturer women? Or is that too simplistic? I would say yes. 
because with the children and with, with Jazzy's case and with a lot of my other um, young people's cases is they get the bullying. Mm. Um, get, they get teased. A lot of the kids can't afford a nice wig or what I call a hair accessory. So it's really hard for them to navigate. And you think about being a child and you're, you're, you're going through adolescence and you're just trying to figure out who you are as a young girl or as a young man and to have alopecia dealing with that on top of your hormones and so much going on. It is extremely, extremely difficult for young kids to deal with this. And I take my hat off to all the kids that are dealing with it at a young age. And I'm grateful that I was an adult when I got diagnosed with it. Now, I know that your your organization is in its infancy still. You started in 2009. And as you have attested to, you've had an incredible impact on lives and are even having an incredible impact, I believe, right now as we speak and uh, people are aware of what you are sharing. There are organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous that have a counterpart like Al-Anon for those who love people who or are dealing with people who have uh, alcoholic issues. Now, in your case, we're not dealing with anything which is a malady that has been brought about by habits or behavior. But is there, a, a, interestingly, a concept ever considered of eventually having a support group to help spouses who the ones they love are going through this so that, in other words, is there even a part of your program that says, okay, we know that your wife is distraught. We know that your daughter is distraught. We know that perhaps your husband's distraught. This is how we know best to help them. Will there eventually be that component if it isn't already existing? Yes, there is that component. And we are fine tuning that right now because I have I have wives that are married and their husband, they don't have a clue. They've never seen them. So the wives are a prisoner in their own, their own home. And then I have the other side where the husbands have alopecia and then they have the wives. And so what our, our goal as an organization is we're putting together more detailed, uh, we'll say, support in ways in which we can support um, couples um, that are living with this um, disease. And there's so much work that needs to be done. But we need help. <laughs> I mean, when I say we need help um, from professionals, we do have a um, hotline for uh, a 1-800-SUICIDE hotline as well. But what my ultimate goal and dream is to be able to have at least two or three full-time people that um, are accessible and available to pick up a phone or to respond with, with um, emails. Because for the majority of everything right now is me. And I, I don't have the capacity um, to do and to continue, but I do have some leadership in place. But it's a little bit different when you're, when you're trying to, uh, we'll say, lay the foundation to put things in place so we can have an, uh, more of an impact to be able to support every person on every level, like you're saying, the spouses. And, but we do teach them how to support what to say, what not to say when it comes to their loved one dealing with um, this traumatic and life-changing disease. What are some of the things not to say? One of the things not to say is, it's just hair. I hear people say that, oh, it's just hair. And I tell them, well, don't just say that it's just hair because you wouldn't say that if it, wasn't, if it was you. 
when you say that and to someone who has no control over their hair, mm-hmm. or you say that to someone who may never grow their hair, it it rubs us the wrong way. It hits the wrong way. Some people will say, just put on a wig or just cover it up. So to answer that question, I would say just be a little bit more sensitive. You know, first of all, if you don't, if you don't know what to say, just say, you know what, I'm here to listen. I'm here to support you. If, if nothing else, you can just say that. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. Myra Plato. On Science Friday, we wonder about the secrets of nature and meet the scientists finding the keys to the universe, like Black Hole Maven Jan 11. I think it's really important as a scientist not to put a belief system first. The whole point is to explore the unknown. Come explore with us. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Friday at 2 on WHRV, public media serving Eastern Virginia. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm the show's host and creator, Alan Campbell. And my guest I'm delighted to have here is Jamie Elmore, a very eloquent, honest, candid and direct person talking about her experience dealing with alopecia, the the massive loss of hair, sometimes in its entirety. Ironically, she has been a hair designer and hairdresser uh, for nearly three decades with her salon called J Salon in Seattle, Washington. But also very significantly, she is the president and founder of an alopecia support group in that great region of the United States. Um, Have you got intentions of spreading out to broader and wider communities? You've acknowledged that you can't be the one-man band doing everything. But are you interconnected with other groups around the country, perhaps? We are. Actually, we have a global movement. We're not just here in Seattle, Washington. So we have a huge presence on social media, on Facebook. We have thousands and thousands of members from all over the world. I mean, from Ireland, the UK, Japan, uh, I mean, just, I mean, everywhere. And it blows my mind to see that there are so many people that's dealing with this disease. And I tell people all the time, there's like 6.8 million people in the U.S. 147 million people worldwide with this disease. And I think those numbers are really off because a lot of people don't um, talk about alopecia and and they don't come forward. But our goal um, is to have branches, chapters throughout the country. And we are in the process of organizing and planning that out as well. We have a lot of people from all over that are that have stepped up. They've reached out to us and they want to have their own support group meetings in their local areas. What I found, Dr. Campbell, is with the with the online social media platform, it makes it a little easier mm-hmm. 
to handle because you have people from all over the world chiming in on a question. You have people from all over the world chiming in and giving support and suggestions. Like, for, for example, I, um, I posed a question today, and the question was, do you prefer to be bald or wear a wig? And so many people just started dropping questions and answers and just to see the dialogue from so many different backgrounds, I think even with that standpoint, we will be able to mobilize and have more of a um, support and more leadership step up because we'll be able to pull from different, you know, areas of the world, not just the country. I think that question is very interesting because as a man who, as I've indicated, is follically challenged, as I always say, with a grin on my face, um, I elected early on never to have a toupee. Uh, and um, I don't mind, you know, other people do it. Uh, I have had this curious experience of some people who I suspected were wearing toupees looking at me, uh, wondering if I recognized that they were wearing a toupee, and I had the confidence not to. Um, so, I mean, to each his own. There's a part of me, that, the, the, I don't know if you remember, um, Scott was the man's name, who used to be on the Today Show, Willard Scott. And okay. Willard Scott... Uh, for a long time in the 1980s, he one moment he would have uh, a toupee on, and the next day he wouldn't. And you know, sometimes it would change by the hour. And sometimes I've, I've had a fantasy of, of wearing a toupee to go to a party and walking out without it, or walking in bored and then putting one on as I was leaving, <laughs> just to to play with people. But with the mirth that I express here, it is a serious decision I know for people to to make on an ongoing basis. How can perhaps a high-profile celebrity? celebrity help. For instance, I, I mentioned at the outset Sinead O'Connor. She she uh, elected uh, in the 90s to shave her hair uh, completely. Yeah. We've had Britney Spears, who for various reasons went entirely bald and uh, semi-concealed it. We've also had um, people like Grace Jones, who not entirely bald, but certainly very closely cropped hair. Do you as a group think, man, I wish we could just have some leading cardinal personalities in a TV show, uh, a woman who is is bald and is quite at peace with it. Do, do you long for that kind of character to be developed? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. I long for that character to be developed. And that is one of my dreams is to uh, produce a movie because we just produced our first um, documentary. But there is several famous people, movie stars that have alopecia, and they have talked about it and publicly. And one of the, the young ladies that I have a ton of respect for, she's not totally bald, but she talked about it on her show, and that's Jada Pickett, oh. Jada Pickett-Smith. And when I saw that, that episode, I just cried because I felt her pain. I understood every, every single emotion that she was feeling. And I said to myself, one day I'm going to meet Jada Pickett and she's going to help me put together an event <laughs> that's going to be able to impact even more people. So yes to your question. <laughs> have you reached out to her people, her, her uh, agents and managers yet? I have not. I don't even know how to go about doing it, but... Now that we have, um, that we've completed the documentary, which will give people even more insight into the lives of people that have um, alopecia, I think that's going to give us some credibility and give us more footing because sometimes people don't understand how devastating alopecia is 
in individuals' lives. And so I think that's going to help us. So if you have any suggestions, I'm definitely open. <laughs> I, 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 I would defer to my producer, who's very good at contacting people, and he can give you the, uh, uh, the direction and advice how to do it. I, I would be remiss, and my audience would, I think, rightfully be quite furious with me if I didn't ask you, what is the name of the documentary and how can people access it? Great question. The name of the documentary is Harmony, Alopecia Stories, we had a private viewing on September 25th of 2019. We have not released it yet to the public. Um, it was just our first closed viewing because it was like a year-long project, mm-hmm. and it's going to take more money to do what we want to do. Um, our goal is to be able to create a, a docu-series as well. And so we are in the process of uh, getting permission to put it on different platforms. But what I will be honored to do is we'll be doing a private showing online for some of our sponsors, and I will make sure that you are part of that so you can see the actual documentary. And then once everything is in place and we release it to the public, I'll make sure I let you know so then you can let your, your listeners know so they can take a look at this moving documentary. It's, it's simply amazing. It really is. Jamie, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do it? Would you mind giving us the information related to your um, your organization and its key contact information, please? Yes. They can find us on um, through our website, and it's alopecia, spelled A-L-O-P-E-C-I-A, support group, all one word, alopeciasupportgroup.org, or they can just look my name up. Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, E-L-M-O-R-E, Jamie Elmore or Alopecia Support Group and it alopeciasupportgroup.org and it will all lead back to me. They can find us. In all of your experience dealing with other people's, uh, other people who have obviously dealt with uh, alopecia, what person has impressed you the most? When you say impress me, do you mean as far as um, impressed upon my heart or impressed... It just um, impressed you with their responsiveness and how they've handled something. You know what? I do have one. One of my babies, she's a six-year-old little girl. Her name is Zuri. She has rocked my world as well. Her, her spirit, her attitude, her smile, and her confidence has really encouraged and inspired me. So she has been the one that has impressed me the most out of all these years that I've been living with alopecia. Now, Jamie, I would imagine that perhaps your daughter, how old is your daughter, uh, by the way, now? 26 years old on December 30th. Does she ever have any worry that uh, alopecia can be hereditary? Is it a hereditary uh, issue in some ways? It can be genetic and it can be hereditary. Um, but I think for my for my daughter, because I've talked to her about this for so long, I hid from her. So I was a prisoner in my own home. Mm. But when I finally showed her, she did cry. And it was more of, I think, a sense of she didn't have any control. She didn't know what was going on with me. So over over a period of time, I had to explain to her what alopecia was. And How old was she? She was... About five or six years old, yes. About five or six years old. And so she cried when she saw you like that? Yes, she cried. Was it fear? Was she afraid? Yeah, she was afraid. Because at that time, I looked 
different. I had, imagine, I had strands of hair just sticking off of my head, just just in all these bald spots throughout my head. I see, I see. Uh, so now, um, if you have your grandchildren eventually, perhaps, you will let them know that Granny doesn't have any hair uh, right from the start, I presume, or, or would you try and conceal that from them? Oh, no, I don't conceal okay. anymore. I took off my wig and st- I have not worn a wig since 2009. And so my grandchildren in the future, they will come out of my daughter's womb seeing Grandma bald. I will not hide. I will not conceal. I walk around right now, bald, free. Yeah, bald and free. Sometimes when it's cold, I may throw on a hat or wear a head wrap, but every day I am bald. Yes. Jamie, I want to ask you, how has alopecia affected you outside of the obvious physical changes? Alopecia has rocked my world. And what I mean by that is Of course, I've lost my hair, lost my eyelashes, my nose hairs, and things of that nature. But mentally, it has taken me by storm, and I had to learn how to deal with it. With the anxiety, the depression, the psychological roller coaster ride has been very and had been, I'm, I'm much better now, that's been very challenging for me because I didn't know how to handle it. it because I, I realized that it's, it was a mind game. The self-talk was important on this journey. And a lot of people don't talk about that. They don't talk about the self-talk. They don't talk about the, the self-talk that you have with yourself every day when you look in the mirror. That conversation that you have with yourself is one of the most important conversations that you will have on a daily basis. So that's that has been one of my biggest challenges. And I teach people how to have the proper self-talk and self-love, self-care, the holistic approach. Well, I, I didn't know what that looked like. I do want to talk about that. I definitely want to talk about that. Tell me about the self-talk. When you wake up in the morning before you've poured, I presume, your coffee and had your first piece of toast, how does your self-talk begin, Jamie? What do you do? When I wake up, when I wake up in the morning, my first thought is I'm grateful to be alive because I can remember on the onset of my alopecia, there were plenty of nights and mornings when I woke up where I didn't even care to have woken up. Not that I wanted to commit suicide, but there were so many times that if I would have just slept my life away, I would have been okay with it at that time. But now I wake up and I say to myself, I'm going to be all right. Who can I encourage today? Who can, who can I put a smile? Who, who, who can I touch today? And that is really my self-talk. In the morning, how can I make a difference in somebody else's life? You've hit upon something very important, which I've observed over the years, and uh, I've actually shared with students because I'm, I'm a college professor as well as doing this program. 
I always tell my students that we have a choice. We can be self-centered or other-centered. And what I've heard throughout this entire interview with you is the way you have coped consistently has always been based on being other-centered. And it is in being other-centered that we find ourselves centered in the most appropriate and right meaning of that phrase. Jamie Elmore, you have been a blessing to me. You have undoubtedly been a blessing to endless people who have been listening. You're a voice of hope. You're a voice of kindness. You're a voice of love. You're a voice of faith. And a most welcomed and treasured voice on this program, Watching America. I can't thank you enough, my dear. And um, figuratively, just I'm giving you a metaphysical hug via the microphone and your telephone. Thank you so very much. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your platform. Take care and God bless. You too. Little girl with the pressing curl. Age eight, I got a jerry curl. Thirteen, and I got a relaxer. I was a source of so much laughter. At fifteen, when it all broke off. Eighteen, and I went on natural. February 2002, I went on and did what I had to do. Because it was time to change my life. To become the woman that I am inside. Ninety-seven dreadlocks all gone. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. And Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.